Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Hey, well, welcome to Abundant Life Church. My name is David, and I'm the pastor of groups here, and I'm, I'm so excited that you found a way to join us this week. I, I acknowledge that this week is a little bit different, as you're probably joining us online, whether that means you're, you're listening or watching, but no matter what, I'm excited that you were able to be a part of this with us, and I hope that you are able to experience this service in community. Whether that means you're with your family or friends or even with your life group, it's our hope that you will find creative ways to still safely experience community in these weeks and this season ahead of us. Well, about a year ago, I experienced jury duty for the very first time. And I don't know if you approach jury duty like I do, uh, but I was actually really excited to be in the selection process. I was really hoping that I wouldn't just have to sit there for a couple of days and not even have my name called. Well, luckily for me, about a half hour in, my name was called and I was brought up to a courtroom for jury selection. And as we we're sitting there, they explain that this case is going to be a lawsuit over a car accident. And the defendant and the plaintiff come in with their attorneys, and the plaintiff came in in a wheelchair and a boot and a neck brace and didn't say a word. And in their introductions, the the attorney for the plaintiff uh, said that her client was there today just to make an appearance but would not be joining us for the rest of the trial because she didn't feel up to it. Now, this took me aback a little bit. I think a few of us jurors were kind of looking side to side to see if other people are having the same reaction that we were. But anyway, we went on with the selection process, which is just a bunch of questions back and forth from each attorney. Well, the last question was from the plaintiff's attorney who asked us, did my client's appearance here today, her presence, the way she presented herself, and the fact that she's not going to be here for the rest of the trial affect your bias in any way? Now, I tend to be a pretty positive person. I tend to give most people the benefit of the doubt, but even for me, this was a little bit sketchy. It was a little bit much, and I found it really hard without any other context, any other witnesses, any other insight uh, to really accept what I was seeing as legitimate. And I won't tell you how I answered the question, but what I will tell you is that I did not get selected for that case. Well, we are going to be continuing our journey in the book of John today. We've been here uh, for quite some time, and, and before we jump in, I want to remind us of the purpose of the book of John, that the author, John, had a very specific purpose in mind as he was, as he was writing this gospel, as he was writing this book, and Pastor Jeremy talked about that on the very first week of this series, uh, but let's look back at John 20, verses 30 through 31. It says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So what does John want? He wants two things, so that people would continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they would find life 
by the power of his name. And I want us to keep this in mind as we move forward today. I think this is going to be really important with the passage we're looking at. So if you have your journals with you, uh, you can turn to week three. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to still be in John chapter five. And the title of today's message is Three Witnesses. Well, we've been in chapter five for quite some time, for, for a few weeks now, and it begins with Jesus healing a man who was lame, a man who couldn't walk. And for a number of reasons, uh, the Jewish leaders that were around them, the, the teachers that were around them uh, had an issue uh, with what Jesus was up to, and they engaged Jesus in a conversation where they're really asking, who do you think you are? Why do you think you can do this? Who are you? And today we're going to wrap up this interaction. And, and I believe that we can learn a lot by Jesus's, I would really say, legal defense of who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God. In some ways, this section is going to be a capstone, a summary of where we've been so far in the book of John. Uh, we've seen a number of themes, a number of, uh, of things come up over and over again in this book that Jesus is going to bring. And I really think that Jesus and also the author John have been building a case this entire time right under our noses. And this section is gonna be kind of a closing statement, if you've watched an episode of Law and Order, uh, a, a closing statement that brings all the witness testimonies together and brings this powerful statement of who Jesus truly is, the Messiah, the Son of God. So if you're with me in John chapter five, let's jump into verse 31 together. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. This is Jesus starting his defense. But someone else is also testifying about me. And I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so that you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. So witness number one that Jesus is calling is John the Baptist. And if you've been with us in this series, we've talked a lot about John the Baptist. He had this whole ministry that was centered around declaring the coming of the Messiah. He was known for saying things like, clear the way for the Lord's coming. And what we see in this passage is that these leaders, these teachers were excited about that message that they were so pumped up about the Messiah finally coming. They'd been looking for him, and he was finally about to arrive. And they were so excited until they knew that it was Jesus. See, for them, Jesus was a bit of a letdown. He was a bit of a disappointment. He was not who they were looking for. Let's keep going in verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John. My teachings and my miracles... The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one that he sent to you. So witness number two here is the words and the works of Jesus. He says that, that by his words and his works you can know that he was sent by the Father. You can know that he is truly God, that he was sent with these words and these works in mind. And we've seen this so far in the book of John. Think back to John chapter four. 
or there a few weeks ago when Jesus was engaging with the woman at the well. And what was amazing about this interaction is he didn't do anything miraculous. He didn't perform a healing. He didn't do a wonder. He didn't even forgive her sins. What did he do? He told her everything she ever did. And this was so amazing to her that she went and told her whole village. And they came to see for themselves. And they heard from Jesus. And this was their response to the woman in verse 42. Now we believe. Not just because of what you told us, but because we heard him ourselves. Now we know he is indeed the savior of the world. They knew that Jesus was the savior of the world because of what he said, because of what they heard him say. So this is his words in action, right? His, his words attributing to, to who he really is. And then we also see his works. If we go a bit farther back in John chapter two, we see Jesus at the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. And he did a number of works there. They aren't even recorded in the book. But it does say this, that because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. So because of what he did, people began to trust in him. Because of what he said, people knew that he was the savior of the world. And what's so incredible to think about in this passage is that these Jewish leaders Jesus is talking to just witnessed him heal a man who couldn't walk, but it wasn't enough for them. They didn't recognize him as the savior of the world because of it. Let's finish our passage here, starting in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know that you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. But if you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? This is witness number three, the scriptures. For these leaders that Jesus is talking to, Moses is the great mediator between God and man. I think for a lot of us, Moses has just become this Bible character, right? We know him because he split the sea and because of the plagues of Egypt. But for these Jewish leaders, Moses was the author. He was the writer, the mediator between God and man and brought the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible that include the law that they've dedicated their lives to. And Jesus is pointing out the irony that they have made names for themselves as scriptural scholars, as knowing this law backwards and forwards, teaching it, living by it. But this whole time, the scriptures and the law were pointing to Jesus. And, and Moses, who, who knew God, who wrote the law and the scriptures, would be so ashamed because they were finding their life in living by the law. They were finding their life in knowing the scriptures rather than seeing the person that they were pointing to all along. 
Back in John chapter one, John the Baptist says this about the relationship between Moses and Jesus. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So we have our three witnesses, John the Baptist, Jesus' words and his works, and we have the scriptures. All are familiar to these leaders, but Jesus is pointing out something significant. He's pointing out that these leaders are operating out of confirmation bias. Now, this may be a term that's new to you, but for a lot of us, it may at least be familiar. And maybe you've heard it around, maybe you've used the term yourself, confirmation bias. If you're not familiar, uh, here's a definition from Sharam Heshmat. It says, once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. I'll say it again. Once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. See, I think another way of saying this is is that we confuse the desire to be right with the desire to have been right. I think we all do this. There's this desire to have been right all along, but we confuse the desire to truly be right, to find the truth, with the desire to have been right all along. And, And an example of this is, have you ever been in an argument where you started getting that feeling of, oh, I might be wrong. And instead of conceding or admitting that, that you might be wrong, you dig in a little bit deeper. You fight for your point a little bit harder. Why? Because being wrong is embarrassing. And we do this with, with our spouses, maybe with your parent or your child or just your friends, that we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to give up anything. So we dig in a little bit deeper. Because conceding we're wrong hits our pride. And if we've been fighting for a while, it can feel like a surrender. We might say, I have been fighting for this for so long. There's no way that I could be wrong. And if you're wondering whether or not you're operating out of confirmation bias, if, if this is how you're kind of approaching the world around you and the way you, you receive information, I found five questions that can be really helpful and figuring out if this is how you're operating and even finding some freedom from your own bias. Here's the five questions. Number one, which part did I automatically agree with? When you're looking at a a news segment or, or reading an article or a book or having a conversation, which parts did you automatically agree with? I understood this before, I agreed with it before, I resonated right when I read it. Number two is which parts did I ignore or skim over without even realizing. This happens a lot when we think we already understand something or sometimes when we disagree with something and we already know that, that we just skip over it, maybe without even realizing it. Next, how did I react to the parts that I agreed or disagreed with? What what was happening with your emotions when you agreed with something? Did you feel really good, really vindicated, like "This, this is great? Or the parts you disagreed with, was that a little bit unsettling? Maybe you felt a little bit of anger when you heard something that you disagreed with. Did you notice that? Number four, did this confirm any ideas I already had and why? It may be that you were just listening for the things that would confirm your idea. And lastly, what if I thought 
the opposite of those ideas. This is that empathic response of getting in the shoes of someone else and thinking, if someone didn't agree with this or did agree with this, how would they react? How would they respond to this information if they were different than me? Around the time that John was writing his gospel, uh, around the second century, very beginning of the second century, uh, there was a new phrase being coined. Uh, and you probably haven't heard it. It hasn't gone around very much lately. It's very much like a black swan. People used to say that, that, that something, man, that was just like a black swan. And it was a way of saying that something's impossible. It'd be like us today saying, uh, that'll happen when pigs fly. Right? It's, a, it's a way of saying that will never, ever happen. And the logic went, we've only seen white swans. We've only ever heard of white swans. Therefore, all swans must be white. It would be ludicrous to think of a black swan. Well, for over a thousand years, 1400 years, this phrase was used, and you can find it in different liter literature if you research, uh, but it was a common phrase until 1400 years later, a continent called Australia was discovered. And what do you think that they found there? Black swans. They, they discovered these black swans and the zoological world went crazy. The scientific community didn't know what to do with it because it was such an accepted fact that swans could only be white. It blew up their idea of what swans could be. And now there's even a theory called the black swan theory that tests how we react to completely unexpected information when we're not looking for it at all, when it's totally out of the blue, how does it change us individually and as a whole? I believe for these Jewish leaders who've been studying the scriptures, looking for the Messiah their entire lives, had a perfect idea of who the Messiah would be, Jesus is a black swan. That they, they've given, uh, they've had these ideas about God, they've developed these ideas about the Messiah for their whole lives, and it doesn't matter what John the Baptist says. It doesn't matter what, what Jesus does. It doesn't matter what he says. And really, it doesn't matter what the scriptures say. They will not see Jesus as he truly is because they were looking for their idea of the Messiah, their developed idea of who the Messiah was. And because of that, they were missing who he truly is. So my question for you is, are you looking for Jesus as he truly is? Or are you only looking to reinforce your idea of who he is? For these Jewish leaders, Jesus completely shook up their theology and their worldview. He shattered their idea of who the Messiah would and could be. Has Jesus changed your worldview? Has he shaken up your idea of God or theology? I've wrestled with this uh, time and time again in my journey with Jesus, and I found that, that Jesus doesn't often uh, agree with my theology. As I really engage with Jesus, I find, man, we're kind of at odds here. And I have a choice. I can either change what I'm thinking, change my idea, or I can change my view of Jesus to fit my view. And I've learned over time that I have to change. 
that I have to adjust in order to see Jesus as he truly is. I've also found that, that Jesus doesn't tend to agree with my politics. That often I've developed these ideas and Jesus doesn't really agree with them and I have to change. Sometimes Jesus doesn't agree with my life decisions, the choices that I make, and I have to change. The speaker and author Beth Moore said, faith is not believing in my own unshakable belief. Faith is believing an unshakable God when everything in me trembles and quakes. As we discover Jesus as he truly is, it'll shake us. That it should be uncomfortable. We should realize that some of our ideas and concepts need to change because the goal is not to have been right all along. It's to find Jesus as he truly is is. And often when we, when we think about finding Jesus as he really is, looking for the real truth, we say, we just got to get back to the Bible. We just got to find what the Bible says about Jesus and that will be the answer. But remember where these Jewish leaders got their ideas about who the Messiah would be, how they formed those ideas. It was through the scriptures. How does this happen? Well, it's possible to be an expert in the scriptures, to be an expert in the Bible, to know it cover to cover and still not see Jesus for who he truly is. And this is because we bring our own ideas. We bring our own experiences. We bring our own values and bias to the table. And often we find ourselves searching through the scriptures for verses and passages that back up, that defend what we already want to believe. And so if you're wanting to, to see what it would look like to maybe get out of this or test where you're at on this, I want to challenge you to try asking the questions that we talked about before, that confirmation bias test when you read the Bible. When you are studying on your own or studying in a group and looking at a passage, ask these questions. Which, part, which parts did I automatically agree with? There will be some. Which parts did I ignore or skim over without realizing? Those might be just boring parts or parts you think you already knew. What would it look like to actually look at them? How did I react to the parts that I agree or disagree with? And you might say, I don't disagree with anything. It's the Bible. But if you're not finding yourself disagreeing or struggling or finding any tension in the Bible, I would really check and see, am I experiencing some confirmation bias? There should be some things that I need to wrestle with. And, and next, did this confirm any ideas that I already had? Anything that I've already established, did this confirm that and why? And lastly, what if I thought the opposite of those ideas? What if I put myself in somebody else's shoes that disagrees with me? How would they read this passage? You might just see it in a totally different light. Well, Jesus gave us three witnesses. Three witnesses that testify to his identity as the Son of God, the Messiah. And that's John the Baptist. That's Jesus' own words and his own works. And that's the scriptures. But you see, just like these Jewish leaders, these will only impact us. These witnesses will only influence us if we get our own bias out of the way if we work hard to get ourselves out of the picture so we can truly see Jesus as he is. 
I think of John the Baptist and I think of the, the people that testify about Jesus as he did. You might think of pastors, but you also might think of friends, maybe your life group, maybe some sermons that you listened to, but what if you listened to those people even after you disagree with them? What if you, you pushed through and actually kept listening when something was confusing or when you disagreed? Because those voices might communicate some truth that you're not currently hearing. When we look at Jesus' words and works, I have to ask, what if we looked for Jesus to speak and work in ways we've never experienced before? Are we trapped in, in how Jesus has worked and spoken in our lives before? And we're just looking for the same thing over and over again. Or are we ready? Are we willing to see Jesus in ways we would never expect? And when we look at the scriptures, how would your study of the Bible change if you became more and more aware of your bias and what you're bringing to the table? What new things would you discover about Jesus? Well, most of us are, are going to have some extra time in the next few weeks, especially on Sundays. And I would encourage you to look at this as an opportunity to engage in some different ways. Maybe you need to ask some of these questions. Maybe you need to assess your own confirmation bias, the way that you're looking at the world, the way you're receiving information. Maybe it's time to study the Bible a little bit differently or engage with Jesus in brand new ways. I'm gonna close with a poem uh, from Shannon Alder and says this. Read it with sorrow and you will feel hate. Read it with anger and you will feel vengeful. Read it with paranoia and you will feel confusion. Read it with empathy and you will feel compassion. Read it with love and you will feel flattery. Read it with hope and you will feel positive. Read it with humor and you will feel joy. Read it without bias and you will feel peace. Do not read it at all and you will not feel a thing. Let's pray together. God, we want to engage with you. Lord, we don't want to stop engaging and not feel anything. We want to engage with you, but we want to truly engage with you. Lord, some of us need to confess that we have been shaping you the way that we want you to be. We've been following our idea of who you are. But Lord, would you reveal to us more and more who you truly are? Would we get our bias out of the way so that we can discover you, Jesus, as you truly are? Because Lord, these Jewish leaders, they saw everything. They saw John the Baptist and the message that he gave. They saw your words. They heard your words. They saw what you were doing. They read the scriptures, and yet they still missed you. We don't want to miss you. We want everything that you have for us. Lord, make us aware of our experiences, our ideas, our bias that we're bringing to the table so that we can see you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.